1: enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns make this mother's day unforgettable with a piece from blue nile right now get up to 50 percent off at blue nile.com that's BlueNile.com.
2: welcome to spark lemon
1: we tell true stories
2: we tell them live
1: and we tell them all across london at the end of every year, we ask our favourite storytellers to come back.
0: To celebrate our birthday with us.
2: So here's a very special extended edition of the podcast.
1: This first story was told by Radcliffe Royds.
3: The beginning of my story saw me driving back from a wonderful weekend in Bournemouth. I didn't have any friends in Bournemouth, but my wife didn't want me at home that weekend. I know this because when I got home, And I tried to put my key in the lock. The lock didn't turn. And I was a tad confused. Um, I'm an intelligent man. It's hard to spot from the back, but (laughs) those in the front, you'll realise this. And my, my key did not turn. And so I had one of those really unedifying conversations. And I hope none of you have had to have one. If there are any of you here tonight that are due to have one or have had one, You have my deepest sympathy. Where I tried to speak and negotiate my marriage through a letterbox. (laughs) I didn't do very well. In between the dog barking, my wife shouting, and me crying, I didn't do rejection very well. I realised that it was time to withdraw. And the tactical withdrawal is often the best form of defence. And I rang up a friend of mine and it was quite late. It was about midnight. And there aren't many friends of mine that were still up at midnight on a Sunday night. Most people at that time in my life would be ready to go to work. They had jobs. And I had a job in the beginning. But the only person I could find who was awake was a great friend of mine called Wog. And uh, he had one huge advantage over all my other friends. Is that he loved people coming around. <laughs> Especially people who had jobs. Because people who had jobs had money. And he never did have a job or money. He did, though, have an inordinate amount of pharmaceuticals. (laughs) Now, I don't know if ever you've been in a failed relationship and styled your way through it. I I, I wasn't very practised in this. Um, You'll be surprised at that when I tell you the rest of the story. Um, Because I arrived at his house at about 12.30, and he sort of met me with a hug and a smile. And a rather grandiose silver tray, which I proceeded to empty with him. Uh, I slightly got annoyed with the fact that he wouldn't keep, fall asleep. And we smoked this, and we sniffed that. And do you know what? I've got to be honest. I felt a million dollars. I felt fantastic. <laughs> my marriage had fallen apart. That's fantastic. I felt so good that I wanted to keep telling him how good I felt that I forgot to go to work the next day. So I lost my home, my wife, and my job in the space of 24 hours. It's quite an achievement, really. It wasn't what I'd planned, and how I dealt with that, and what that led on to, is what I was going to tell you the story of tonight. Because after a while, even your best mate, um, you know, they start off with, I don't know if any of you have ever taken any pharmaceutical drugs, and if there are any policemen here, please suspend disbelief, this is (laughs) theatre. From here I can spot one or two of you. And I... You weren't there. No, you weren't there. I had taken quite a few, not really in the way that I'd learnt to do it. And I just, for some reason, the pain that I was in, I couldn't stop. I couldn't face what I was doing. And my friend, in the end, decided that I was becoming quite an expensive uh, charity case. Mm -hmm. And um, you know how you go to someone's house and they cook for you and it's really nice. And then after a while you get that expression, the cold shoulder comes out. Well, I was sort of reduced to smoking spliff, which wasn't what I wanted. And it certainly wasn't what the habit that I'd developed in the sort of three, four weeks that I'd staying with him, avoiding feeling anything, which was the payoff. And eventually I went back to his house, and yet again, my key didn't turn in the lock. <laughs> and actually I found myself homeless, and I found myself spiralling into such a despairing place that I'm not even sure today how I came out of it. But to cut a long story short, which is very out of character for me, I ended up in the West End with no money. I didn't have checkbooks. I didn't have access to my bank accounts. I didn't have any normal things. I was so desperate, I was even driven to call my mother.
0: <laughs>
3: now, for those of you who have not met my mother, <laughs> she is a woman who brushes her hair to answer the telephone. And I, te- I telephoned. Hello, Mummy! How would it be if I came home for a few days? Oh, no, dear, our insurance wouldn't cover that. (laughs) She put the phone down. This was not going well. But I had a mate. I had an oppo. I had Delroy. Now, anyone who's in a breaking marriage with a drug habit needs a Delroy. Now, the great thing about Delroy is he... He had not had all the advantages that I'd started with, but he had an awful lot of the skill sets that I had to acquire if I was going to survive as a homeless drug addict in London. And um, he also had the amazing attribute of being able to spot in a crowd anywhere. He had a spiderweb tattoo across half his face like this, beautifully crafted, and his trousers were made out of beer mats. And he was... (laughs) sort of towels and he was quite an interesting character and we spent hours talking utter nonsense to each other and I really liked him it was great and he taught me how to survive as a homeless street addict in London and that was by shoplifting and it wasn't, uh, wasn't particularly glamorous it was quite low budget <laughs> and I supported my life out of taking boxes of chicken wings from sainsbury's or steak steak was good um and i had a lady i actually believed that i was performing a a a public service to be honest because there was a lady that did a lot of meals on wheels for people and she would pay you 50p in the pound so if you had a pack of chicken wings which cost a tenner she'd give you a fiver for it you could do the math it was quite simple i would march in there with delroy he'd run interference because he looked dodgy he get more busy well I just stuffed my pockets full of chicken wings and say, And in fact you are talking to a man who was uh, arrested for uh, the most well travelled leg of lamb in Britain <laughs> it was a particularly alluring leg of lamb it had a £15 price tag on it and I thought I'm having that <laughs> unfortunately I was the third person that day that had made that <laughs> fateful decision to have that it had a tracking device in it I mean a leg of lamb for Christ's sake it had, a, it had a tracking device in it and I put it in my coat and um, I, got, uh, I got stopped two places outside the shop. Well, I say I got stopped, I got thrown to the ground. Thank God for the leg of lamb because if it hadn't been bulging, I might have really hurt myself. My life had deteriorated. And after that, and I'd been skippering around and I had nowhere to go and I ended up, with Delroy, I ended up living in a skip. And I like to tell everyone it was a convertible skip. It had a rag top and it was uh, just off in the West End, just uh, behind Dean Street. And I lived in it for three months with Delroy, my skipmate. And our life was just a pattern of minor petty theft, cheap, bad drugs, cold, wet, depressing. And the moments that I actually had clear vision, the shame of, and the sort of shock and the despair of what I'd done to myself, you know, I was this living embodiment of self-pity. I, I cannot describe how awful it was. And I decided that in a, in a moment of, um, well, I thought sheer genius, I said, uh, Delroy, my man, <laughs> what we need to do is we need to cut out the middleman. What we need to do is rob a bank. <laughs> now, bearing in mind that my training for this had been an unfortunate attempt at a leg of lamb, <laughs> it was doomed to failure from the start. And uh, we were high, as you get, and... Uh, I convinced him that there was a, nat, a branch of NatWest in Chelsea. I thought they'd be off their guard in Chelsea. Um, I thought my accent would get me in, all right. And uh, by the time we got our shit together, to be honest, it was Sunday morning. And uh, uh, some, of you, some of you have tried to bank in Chelsea. Yeah, but they're all shut. Entirely unreasonable. And um, I then, not to be deterred, decided... To pers- and I persuaded him that, right, what we're going to do... There was a Portuguese cleaning crew going around now i don't look very portuguese and my portuguese is sketchy at the best of times and um, delroy did look portuguese but he also had the spiderweb tattoo <laughs> and we did get in with the portuguese cleaning crew and in my head i thought well there'll be just be drawers full of money and we'll just help ourselves to a bit and go on our way they didn't see it quite like that and um it all kicked off alarms were raised we did a runner I got stopped by a Bob the Builder Have a Go hero, who parked his Nissan Irvan on my feet. In fact, <laughs> the police were called. I was arrested and I was shipped off to Wandsworth, which is a jail uh, in south South London, as I learnt to speak. And because this guy had parked his van on my feet, he crushed my big toes and my toenails had dropped off and my legs swelled up. So I had what I called kebab leg disease, and they were and I was not well. And because I'd been uh, trying to resist arrest, quite violently, it has to be said. I was a desperate man. I'm not not proud of it. And they thought that I was not a good man to have uh, in the community. Now, the hospital services in this country and the doctors, they don't like going to prison, so what they do is they take you from prison to the hospital. Now, if any of you have ever been to Chelsea and Westminster Hospital, you'll know the geography of where I'm going from Wandsworth. How did they get me there? They put hard shackles on my wrist like that, not handcuffs, sort of Victorian-like shackles, so I was locked like that. They got another set on a guard on my, that side and another set on a guard that side. And then they put a leather belt round my waist uh, on a 20-foot steel chain. So I now look like Hannibal Lecter on a day out. <laughs> and I'm still cracking jokes, so I have a laugh. I'm thinking, oh, I'm getting a day out. I could barely walk. I mean, where they thought I was going to run to. My toes were broken. I had fat legs. And they took me to the hospital. And if anyone's familiar with this hospital, it has a revolving door.
0: <laughs> Big revolving door.
3: And there's me with these two huge meathead guards on the chain. And the meathead guards and I, three of us in a row, we got in. The guy with the chain had not had the benefits of my education. And he could not work out. How he... So by now, they've got to get the janitor, the chain's trapped, unlocking the doors. It's a whole... Production number <laughs> And I'm you know, there's a bit of a crowd, you know, and it, I'm still not aware quite the sort of mess that I'm actually in, and I'm chained and shackled, and I can't even get into this hospital, and my legs are also anyway. I, I managed to get up there, and by now I've got a bit stressed standing around in this locked door, and they're walking along with the chain, and I'm going along with these people, and I have to go for a pee. So that was clever, because they had to release me. They couldn't get three of us into the cubicle. So they had to take the guard off my arm, the guard off that arm. But they kept me on the chain, of course. So I timed it quite well. So I put my hand on the lever when I'd done what I needed to do. And I said, right, pull. And he pulled his chain, and I pulled the loo, and it flushed. And I thought that was hugely entertaining. (laughs) I was having ultrasound done on my legs, which, of course, is done in the antenatal bit. So there were all these lovely ladies with their babies. I think I was single-handedly responsible for most of the premature births in <laughs> the borough of Chelsea that year. And they shackled me up again, and they got me out. And then there was no discreet back door, as you know, because I'd gone in this front door. And as I was being led back down the corridor, and it's a long corridor, and there's people, as luck would have it, there was a cousin of my ex-wife, pending, as she was, and later... Uh, came. And she was at a sort of friend's of the hospital, bring and buy bookstore. And she saw me in the distance. She sort of saw my head through the crowd and went, oh, yoo <laughs> <laughs> Hi, babe. Yeah. Um, that was the beginning of the end. And for the first time in this sort of three, four month period of utter abandonment, I saw myself as others must see me. And that was where the beginning really came for me. And I'm very happy to say that I did my time. I'm not so happy to say that I've just told that story in front of my new girlfriend. <laughs> Maybe my latest ex-girlfriend now. <laughs> and I'm very happy to have been invited to be part of Sparks' third birthday. Thank you for listening. <clears throat>
0: Radcliffe now heads up sales for a luxury magazine.
4: Spark London often invites musicians to accompany storytellers.
0: Here's one of our favourites. This is Tim Dickinson and Matilda James, also known as the Silver Lining. This is certainly a true story, um, but the link to animal magnetism is uh, elusive. (laughs) One of us might be a werewolf. i coming early this year. Don't believe a word of it. Us, that someone's looking out for us, aside from we ourselves. A demon or an angel or a goodwill-wishing stranger, I have no idea. Aside from... And spring is on It's way. last We just don't know It could be that You're simply walling up inside And everything's begun to grow
1: have more from the silver lining later.
2: Our next storyteller is Andrew Coldwell. It's March in Joburg. And it's heat. Shameless, shadeless, incessant heat. Not as hot as December or January, but hot enough for an English person. Especially when you're working outside all day. Especially when you're working outside all day, coaching 200 over-excitable young people at football. Especially when you're working outside all day coaching 200 people football trying to motivate four teenagers from inner-city London to help you. <laughs> <laughs> and to keep going in the heat as they meet and bump into all of their own barriers and limitations. And so I find myself looking around in this place Cosmo City, a township, a redevelopment project, a housing project just outside of Joburg. And I look at the dustball pitches littered with kids and with footballs and cones and laughter. and I ask myself, how the hell did I get here?" It's 2006. At some point I can't really remember during the year, a friend. You know, we all have those friends who manage to persuade you to do something that seems completely ridiculous and make it sound very feasible and completely normal. And this friend approached me and said, Andy, I've got a friend. He's great. You really like him. He's doing some great things in Waterloo. He's running a football team of young people on Friday nights to keep them off the streets and out of trouble. And he's doing a great job, but he just needs some help. And I think you could give him that help and give them some support and guidance and discipline and help them to play football with a good attitude. Oh, the irony. Me, possibly the footballer for whom bad attitude could have been coined. (laughs) Me, the footballer for whom, not a team player, he's got a chip on his shoulder and every other potential expression denigrating my contribution to team sports could have been made. Yes, me. The very same child who had to have parents apologising to every other parent on the beach when I refused to be out at cricket or kick their football away at football or just simply swore at them and walked off. (laughs) And me, who as an adult needed my parents there when unfortunately they were no longer there to explain to my friends, teammates and other people who just despised playing with me on a football pitch. Me, the role model. Wow. I guessed. I realised pretty quickly that I was the person who had to change if I was to offer them anything other than my own hypocrisy. And so I began, staring out at a sea of expressionless faces on a Friday night. The undercurrent of apathy and discontentment seeping out, filling the light that the spotlights didn't quite reach. I can't even remember how we started... But I recall goals and confrontations, fights, people sent home, more goals, the beginnings of relationships, glimpses of people who trod warily around would be role models. My own feelings of inadequacy, seeing my failings laid out before me, but realizing that these young people were changing me. Priorities shifted. Friday nights were no longer, yes, I'll be there, great, that party sounds brilliant. They became, I might be there by 10.30, or actually, sorry, I can't, I have football training. I muddled my way through team building sessions, tried to role model vulnerability and openness whilst not losing their respect, scraped money together for trips, and all the while, something was happening, some magic, some indescribable thing that you can't quite touch or feel But it's there. Something about the forming of a team. Something about relationships that began to transcend local rivalries and race. Relationships no longer built on superficial foundations. They said they wanted to play in a team. These young people, many of whom had never belonged to anything, all of a sudden wanted to be in a team. Something had given them purpose. Hub Athletic. That's the name of the team. And so we took another step forwards. Four seasons ago, we launched ourselves into the glamour of Saturday football with entry into West End Amateur League Division 1. <laughs> the players selected the values they wanted to define the team. They still exist. They all know them. They are trust, teamwork, commitment, respect, honesty. And We try and we fail and we try some more to live out these together. And so began a new relationship for me, the relationship I have with a white touchline. Every Saturday, I get closely acquainted with different touchlines, football pitches all across London. They all look the same. I am the manager. I'm sometimes the only supporter. I'm not a father, but I am often the only father figure present. It's been tough watching young people accustomed to fail trying to learn to succeed. Talent has never been the barrier. We are better than most of the adult teams that we play, yet the adult teams have enough belief to trick us that they're better, or they kick us until we believe they're better, or they find other ways to intimidate us, and yet each year we grew older, stronger, better. Finally, we won as last season we were crowned champions of West End Amateur League Division 1. That's not the end, but I'll take that. It It feels good after all those years. So we had success, belief, momentum. Now we're going somewhere, bit by bit, but definitely going somewhere. A second team was started, more young people wanted to join us, another training session. Girls football to ensure we were providing for the whole community. Another, more amazing things happened. Our captain said he wanted to go to India. Uh, My co-manager, Tim, promised he would make it happen. Uh, We wrote to people. Someone gave us £10,000. Next thing, we're in the slums of India. Three players running coaching sessions. Now we're really changing lives. We make a film of our work. We start looking for more coaches. Two more join us. Brilliant, motivated, passionate people. We find money to help the players go on a pre-season training camp. We write CVs. We help them get jobs. We walk them to colleges. We help them enrol on courses. Amidst all of that, we're reminded of just how fragile the change remains in some of the young people. Last year, on my birthday, we cancelled Friday training so that I could have a night off. Five of our young people had a night off too. They went out and they got drunk. Three of them are now in prison. We still visit them. We write to them. We encourage them that they have a future When we support them, we believe in them, we don't condemn them, we don't approve of their behaviour, but we try and stay supportive with them. And so this year, I found myself challenging another group of young people to find their way to Africa. Now, not literally, you understand, maybe that's one for the future, but challenging them to believe that they could get onto a plane to Africa, challenging them to raise the money to get the jabs to fill in the forms, to take the responsibility for them challenging their own failure. Four out of five of them passed the test. They made it onto the plane. And I found myself leading a group of young people to deliver two weeks of youth coaching, football sessions, discussions, games, stories through hard times and indescribable moments of joy in South Africa. And South Africa really struck me. Uh, The people out there were working beyond everything that I thought we were doing I was giving up time, they'd given up jobs, I was giving money, they'd sold homes. Um, the people there who went beyond everything I believed capable and yet still exuded the joy that only those who have a certainty that they have found the meaning in life and that it's not about them can actually exude. I came back after two weeks in South Africa and made plans to return immediately. This summer I took three months leave from my job returned to Cosmo City don't think of me as too altruistic. There was a small football tournament in South Africa during the summer. <laughs> uh, whilst I spent time there coaching, looking for funny, hanging out with someone who totally inspired me and, uh, and who's changed the way I wanted to live my life. He's about to come on stage and tell you his story. So what's the end of my story? Well, does it need one? And if it does, then let's just let it be this. Hub Athletic is a story of how, when we seek to help others, we're changed by the experience. We have big plans for Hub. I hope they lead to further change for all of us involved in the project. And you know, if you ever happen to be in Waterloo, Kennington, come down once or twice, and then who knows what might happen from there. Thank you.
1: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.
5: This next story was told by Katlano Toco. Sometimes I wish that I would be a superhero. Um, Spider-Man, Superman, maybe maybe even Iron Man, but that's not true. I wasn't a superhero, so why the hell was I still sitting in the science class? Um, and so at the end of that period, I decided to walk up to the teacher and say, I'm not, I'm not really enjoying science. I'm not, I don't want to do science anymore. <laughs> and she looked at me wondering, is this boy mad? I think I probably was. And anyway, she tried to convince me the decision I was making was really absurd, Um, trying to convince me, telling me that I need to think about what I'd been doing and what I should be doing, asking me questions like, are you okay? I think what she really wanted to ask was, boy, you're getting dreadlocks. Have you been smoking some weed? (laughs) Um, (laughs) No, I hadn't been smoking weed. And so I decided to go join the history class. History was a really exciting place to be. But the reason I didn't take history the first time around is because everyone in the school always told us that history was meant for all those people who were almost almost smart but didn't really make it. And so I decided to challenge everything that everybody has been saying. You know, grow a pair and go to the history class and actually find out why people sit in history. The The first the first lesson I walk into, I hear this teacher going on about South African history I'm thinking, wow, that must be really, really boring, South African history. And thereon, I stared for the first time at the ignorant mind and the ignorant person I'd been for many years. Yes, I was a South African, and, and for three years, i spent my time studying science, thinking, oh, yeah, this is cool. Everyone would look at me and think that I am smart. Whereas I'd been doing something I absolutely hated, and here I was sitting in a science class, in a history class, needing to catch up three years of history, needed to go through, you know, Lenin, Hitler, and all those. And and here I was, hoping to go through more of that, and the teacher bashes me with guys like Steve Biko, South African hero, Oliver Tambo, the pastor, Nelson Mandela, the hero, yes, I was South African sitting in that classroom listening to this guy talk about all these people that I'd never heard of. It is quite crazy because I was about 18 years old. And I was old enough to know that I should know who Nelson Mandela is. I didn't know about him. I knew he went to prison for a few years. And, and, um, and, and I knew he was a good fighter, a fighter of struggle. But what I didn't know was the pain that he went through. This this lecture teacher, whatever you want to call her, went through all the history. South African history, really exciting. She went through the 1910s. I never thought numbers could be that exciting. 1920s, 1930s, 1940s, all these might be numbers to you. But these numbers came and they grew and, and, and the pain started coming into me. And I realized that I started hating white people. Um, and that hate grew as I dived into more and more of the history lessons. Starting to read about Steve Beaker, who was a great mind. They came up with ideas of black consciousness, a movement that would cause black minds to think that they're actually worth it. And as he continued, I started hating white people more and more. It wasn't the people that were around me, no. It was was the people that I was reading about, but I started reacting to the people who were around me. It was just absolutely crazy. And every single day I'd hear these stories, I'd start opening my eyes to what was actually happening around me. I realized, well, you're one of two black people in this classroom, full of white people. Are you mad? How could you have not seen all of this, all this time? And in the school that I was in, had a couple of hundred people, maybe even 500 people, and I was one of 10. It was crazy that I'd been oblivious to what was happening around me, not seeing That yes, I was a rich little black boy in a private white school. I had white friends. I had colored friends. I had Portuguese friends. All these words I might say might hurt a lot of people's feelings, but they didn't back then. My life was really black and white, but a really colorful black and white because I had a best friend who was Portuguese. I became a racist, but... He was still my best friend. It was just absurd. I didn't understand what was happening to me. Oh, I hate them. I hate them. No, he's my best friend. I hate them. No, he's my best friend. And I continued to wrestle with that until I met a lady who became my teacher and later on my boss. It's really weird. And she, she came to me. and She saw the struggles that I was going through. She saw I was a really, really naughty boy about to start a revolution in the school. <laughs> I would have been my own Nelson Mandela. Yes, I am. And as, as, as I was wrestling with all of this, she came and she sat me down and she, had, she helped me realize that I wasn't fighting people, but I had a problem with the system that I grew up in, the system that continues. And she brought me to a place where I could actually talk to a white person and not hate them. Oh, yes, she was a white lady, surprisingly. And yes, I am saying white and black, white and black, because that's what my life had been up to there. But I hadn't even realized it. My life was about black and white. And then a new beginning came when I started to realize that it's not really about black and white. It's about people. And she... she She was my teacher. She left the school, and later on she decided to hire me. And I thought, oh, what are you doing? Are you sure you want to hire me? And she's like, yeah, I know, I know. You weren't the brightest, but it's okay. (laughs) And so I took the job. It was to work for an NGO, and work with a lot of young people. I thought it might be an easy job. Working with young people has always been easy. But once again, I got to a point where I needed to deal with my hatred towards white people, because I came across young black boys, young girls who'd been through high school and couldn't even speak English properly, couldn't read, couldn't write. And I thought to myself, why is this happening? I should start another revolution. We call it the reading revolution. It sounds silly to many people. Yes, I'd walk around. Yeah, we need to do this reading revolution. But it was a great idea because all those people weren't used to reading themselves. They were taught English. I don't know how. I'm not sure if they did any poetry. But all of that I did. I was, I was confronted with my, all, my own snobbish side. I believed that I was better than them, even though I wished that I wasn't. Even though I felt that I wasn't, at times I'd just look at myself and think, yeah, you're better than them, just because they didn't get the opportunities that I had. I went to a private school. They didn't. They went to a regular government school. They paid for their school fees and they still could not read and write. That was crazy. So this lady hired me for this job and I was thinking, are you mad? Why would you want me to come work here? This is such a painful thing to do. And there in the classroom, while sitting, listening to these young people talk about their lives, I started to realize how stupid I'd been that I wasn't better than them, that there was so much good inside of each one. They all had potential, great potential, potential to be superheroes as well, that I'd always hoped to be. But clearly the superheroes that I've been thinking about, Spider-Man, Superman, they weren't the superheroes I was looking for. Because inside of the people that I met, even though they couldn't read and write, they helped me to realize that I was human. and that They helped me realize that they're human as well. And Cosmo City is a place where I stay in South Africa, Johannesburg. I find myself away from my family, away from any real security, enjoying my life. Because I'm surrounded by young people who don't have the opportunities that I have, but are giving me so much life. More life than I would have had I gone straight to university and decided to get my law degree, which I'm still trying to get trying to get and uh, it's but now I know why I'm doing what I'm doing I know why it's worth me studying law because many people out there don't have a voice and so my new beginning is for people to make sure that they get their voice hopefully one day I might be able to stand here or even sit in the audience and watch one of the people that couldn't read and write tell their story how they came to be able to speak and have a new start
0: In another life we may do better Better than the war we wage down here In another bed we may attest To the elusive art of getting some rest In another life yet to come Without the weight of regret of the captain of a sinking ship Harboring a sadness without bounds And a victim of the wagging of tongues Ever singing songs to make things worse With unrelenting success Better sing a song to harden back separate
2: That was The Silver Lining, and you can hear
0: more from them at myspace.com forward slash silverlining UK.
1: Finally, on this special night, we invited back Andrea Hubert. Andrea was responsible for one of our
4: most downloaded stories, MySpace or His. Around this time, three years ago, I was sitting in my doctor's office filling out a questionnaire to prove that I was suicidal enough to start taking antidepressants. I remember it really clearly, because I'd never before had to fill out a form like this, and if I hadn't been so miserable, I'd have been wetting myself with laughter. One ridiculous question actually asked me to rate from 1 to 10 how often I'd had suicidal thoughts, where 1 equaled never, and 10 equaled every minute of every day. It was ridiculous, and I told my doctor as much. Actually, what I told her was, in a tremendously sarcastic voice, was that on the way to see her, I'd contemplated driving my car at full speed into a wall, and in her professional opinion, did she think that was a 1, a 10, or maybe an 11? I watched in absolute amazement as she painstakingly scribbled, patient wants to drive into wall, worrying, on, on her little pad. Two minutes later, I had a prescription for the drugs I'd asked for, and I was so offended by how easy it had been, that like Groucho Marx, who refused to become a member of any club undiscerning enough to accept him, I binned the prescription before I'd even left the surgery. Like a lot of people, I'd suffered from depression for a long time, but what had made it worse at that point was the breakup of a relationship that, looking back, was merely a plaster holding together my disastrous life. I was so devastated by getting dumped that I spiralled into a malaise that seemed like it would last forever. And it wasn't just the loneliness and the feelings of rejection that come with being dumped. It was everything. I was in and out of freelance writing work, suffering from nerve degeneration in my arms that made it too painful for me to to work, enough to support myself, living with my parents because I couldn't afford rent, and pent up with frustration at knowing I was supposed to be doing something creative, which seemed at odds with the three things I was actually doing, stalking my ex-boyfriend on the internet, smoking ridiculous amounts of weed, and dreaming up new and original ways to kill myself, but fortunately being far too stoned to bother carrying them out. (laughs) I hope this next part doesn't sound too sycophantic, but along came Spark. I'd always wanted to be on stage, but aside from a a few school productions, I'd never had the confidence to take it any further. Though in my fantasies, I was always a successful actress or singer, or my personal favourite in a list of unattainable goals that only other people with actual talent could do, a stand-up comedian who had the ability to make hundreds of people laugh. My very good friend Lucy served as a wonderful therapist at the time and suggested I should try telling my story at Spark. The theme at the time was space, and I wrote a story called My Space or His, in which I described how I'd been stalking my ex-boyfriend on MySpace, (laughs) and how devastated I'd been that, despite his claims to want to stay friends, he thought it was okay to ignore my emails and phone calls as though I'd never existed. For me, this was intended to be a cathartic experience, but when I read the story out, to my surprise, there was a lot of laughter, some of, it, some of it was amusement. Some of it, probably from the ladies, was recognition. Some of it from the men was pity plus uh, an uncomfortable dose of fear. <laughs> the, re- the reaction I got was the catharsis I'd been looking for. Afterwards, people approached me to tell me they'd done the same thing or that they'd laughed a lot, or in the case of one charming audience member, to tell me I was completely mental, but he still would. Then, someone asked me when my next gig was, and before before I'd had the chance to self-deprecate or insist I wasn't really a performer or laugh at the idea that I had anything more to say for myself, I heard myself reply confidently, I'm not sure, but soon I think. Three months later, after a lot of preparation, I was back on stage doing my very first stand-up comedy performance. Nervous doesn't even begin to cover what was happening to my bowels and stomach as I prepared to go on stage. It was only five minutes long, but believe me, when the responsibility of making strangers laugh is on your shoulders and yours alone, five minutes starts to look like five minutes at Abu Ghraib on the wrong end of a cattle prod. <laughs> Perhaps typically, though when I look back, I think it was probably the best thing that ever happened. As soon as I had the mic in my hands, I forgot everything I'd written. Every single word. <clears throat> One of my favourite sayings is by Eleanor Roosevelt, who used to say, "'Women are like tea bags. "'You never know how strong you are till you're in hot water.'" (laughs) And instead of panicking for the first time in my life, I just freestyled. And you know what? Though I have absolutely no idea what came out of my mouth that day, my first stand-up comedy gig made one hell of a cup of tea. Throughout my life, half of which I wasted under a black cloud of misery and self-loathing, I was always able to make people laugh. But I never stuck at anything I tried. Fear of failure would make me give up any new creative venture either before I started or as soon as I failed or in my adult life, as soon as I'd reached a tiny bit of success that meant the next step on the ladder would be 100% harder than the one before it. I had so many failed projects under my belt, I truly believed I'd never succeed at anything. And I'd had such a triumphant first attempt at stand-up, I decided I should probably count it as a minor triumph and leave it at that. Well, that was over a year ago. Since then, I entered an X-Factor-style comedy competition for new comedians where, out of 1,500 entrants, I came second. Thanks. Uh, (laughs) The only woman to ever do so, I might add. I've shared comedy bills with famous comedians. I've been on TV with Heston Blumenthal running around in a pair of prink-frilly knickers. I've had a first review that described me as having the gift of getting laughed from things that aren't funny... One of, the most, one of the most backward compliments I've had since a good friend drunkenly assured me I don't care what everyone else says, Andrea. I think you're really nice. <laughs> I've, performed, I've performed to an audience of 300 and I've performed to an audience of three. I've had praise from influential comedy promoters telling me I've got a bright future in British comedy, followed directly by horrific heckles and deafening boos from audiences who genuinely hated me. I've been quite gently attacked by two Rottweilers on stage in an East London squat populated by dreadlocked hippies, who started barking when I mentioned the word dreadlock hippie in a derisive tone and started licking my crotch, which, in fairness, was actually very funny. I performed more than one gig to agonising, deafening silence. I was recently approached by an agent, and when I went home and checked out his website, it turned out he's actually a real agent from a real agency with great acts on their books, not some weirdo off the street like the negative depressive who still lives in my head naturally assumed he was. And quite crucially, I've cried a lot more times than I ever did when I was depressed. I'm currently in the throes of a writer's block so severe that I'm constantly tempted to give up and tell myself as I've done so many times before well you gave it your best shot it's time for something new but I haven't quit yet also via Spark I've had the opportunity to get into some corporate storytelling work over the last two years during which I've told and retold my MySpace story so many times that it almost seems like I'm talking about somebody else because between you and me In retrospect, the dude was a moron. Mm. You can imagine the shock I felt when about two weeks ago, completely out of the blue, I got an email from Tom, the now infamous ex-boyfriend and the most self-obsessed man I have ever known. It began with something that I think was supposed to resemble an apology for the mean way he'd behaved, followed by some crap about sorting his head out, followed by a short nod to my new career, followed by a really long paragraph all about him. (laughs) I emailed all my friends... To ask what my response should be to his suggestion that we now become friends again. Of all the responses, my favourite one was the very concise, unsubscribe. (laughs) (laughs) In the end, I didn't bother to reply because although he was the accidental instigator of my new beginning, he doesn't get to claim victory over it. I was the one who started again, and I'm the one who's responsible for whether I fail or whether I succeed. One of my favourite philosophers, well, I say favourite like there's a list of them. One of the only philosophers I'm familiar with is uh, Albert Camus, and he subscribed to absurdism, which is a school of philosophy that discusses the conflict between the human tendency to seek meaning in life versus the human ability to find any. (sighs) Thank you, Wikipedia. He also once said, all great deeds and all great thoughts have a ridiculous beginning. Now, I'm not claiming that any of the thoughts I have or any of the things I do are great, but they certainly originated in the bloody ridiculous... And perhaps me getting dumped, writing a story about it, reading it aloud, getting paid to tell it over and over again, cultivating an entire new career in comedy out of the misery caused by a boy whose face they no longer remember, doesn't really have any deeper meaning. But at least I got a good punchline. Thank you very much.
3: Spark London is produced every month by Joanna Yates.
1: And the podcast is by Matt Hill at RethinkDaily.co.uk.
0: For videos, pictures, and info on our
1: monthly event,
3: go to our website, sparklondon.com.
1: Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.